heads and hearts. Uh, Father, I thank you for this night. I thank you for those who have gathered here to be with us. Bless each and every head and heart who is here. And Lord, we greet those who are watching online who for various reasons could not gather with us this night. Uh, bless, bless them as they watch uh, online. Uh, Lord, bless us as we have gathered here in your name. Uh, bless our, our, our time of song that we have remaining, our communion that we have together tonight, and right now the ministry of your word. Oh God, animate the text by your spirit uh, to take uh, the words of a feeble messenger on, uh, on a sketchy speaker and microphone here this night, Lord, and use it for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, the title of my message tonight is From Paradise to Passover to Passion. From Paradise to Passover to Passion. The word passion is a word that is used in the church to describe the historic week that is, is upon us. This is Passion Week. It is the week of all weeks when Jesus suffered and died. Passion means just that. It means suffering. It comes from a Latin word that just means suffering. Uh, even further, it comes from a word that means enduring and enduring under suffering. More than any kind of enduring or, or sort of grunting through the week that takes place as we reflect on the passion and we think about the, the grunting and the toughness and, and all of the endurance of Jesus in this historic week, we need to be mindful that it's not just a week of pain, it's not just a week of endurance, it's not just a week of Jesus being tough, it's, 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 it's Jesus joyfully opening up his arms and taking on this historic week uh, with, with joy and with worship for us. We have gathered here tonight because of what he has done in this historic week. It is a, a week that ends with the excruciating uh, death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, by the way, the word excruciate uh, etymologically is tied to the cross. You see crucifixion and excruciation both come from the same Latin word crux. Um, the word crux literally means cross. Of course, it was used in the Latin-speaking uh, Roman world to, to talk about that act of hanging people on the cross, an act of torture, an act of torture that was forced upon enemies, particularly of the Roman state. So it is the perfect work to symbolize, the perfect word, excuse me, to symbolize suffering. It is the perfect word to articulate pain. It is the perfect word to, to, to picture agony. Crucifixion is excruciating. Painful is the passion, and yet Christ in his heart throughout the week is not, is not gritting and grunting through it. He, he, he enters into the week not with the gritting of his teeth, but with a warm smile, not white-knuckling with tight fists, let alone going fist to cup with bad guys. He's not a bare-knuckle brawler. Jesus comes with open hands and with open arms, reaching out in, in this week, the week of passion, reaching out with love. Listen, the week of passion is, is a week of pain. But it is carried by love and it is carried by deep joy historically. Now, how do I know this? I know this because in the scriptures we read specifically in the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, verse 2, Hebrews 12, 2. Listen, the text describes Jesus going through his suffering and going through this endurance, going through this passion with great joy. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured. That's crux. That's the language of crux, excruciation. He endures. He suffers. This is his passion. And tonight as we uh, want to reflect upon and we want to understand this passion, this dreadful week and the dreadful night of Good Friday of endurance and, and this night not just of endurance, as I said, but a night of joy when, his, when he gave his life for us. As we wrap ourselves around this in our study tonight, this week of passion, we want to have behind it some historical and some canonical context. 
The Passion of the Christ is really a later chapter in a rather big book or an epic saga. And we need to understand this saga. We need to understand the story of this chapter in which we find ourselves when we're talking about passion, this section of the saga. What, what comes before it so that we can understand the moment and this week historically that we remember on this night? It's a bit like walking into a movie late. You're going to miss something if you're walking into a movie late. It's like... I don't know, jumping into the Star Wars saga and doing it out of order and going, wait, who's Darth Maul? Who's Darth Vader? Uh, what, you know, what, what Mandalorian? You know, what's going on? There's an order to it that helps you to understand it. It's like watching the Avengers Marvel Universe in my house. Inevitably, and most of them are my wife, I'll be honest, but, uh, but inevitably we'll be watching them and it's like, wait, hold up, what's going on here? And you're like, ah, you missed, you missed a few episodes. So we've got to pause it, we've got to catch you up to speed so you understand what's going on in this episode. It's like, it's like falling asleep binge-watching something on Netflix. And don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about because under quarantine, no doubt you've had that experience like me where you're binge-watching something on Netflix or Hulu or YouTube or whatever, First World Struggles, and you wake up, from your and you're like oh snap uh, you know I don't even know what's going on you know and then you have to go through because it just kept playing trying to figure out you know where you fell asleep you know first world problem scrolling back and trying to figure out okay when did I fall asleep what's going on in this episode and then you catch up so continuing the Netflix illustration we are stepping into the passion tonight I want to talk to you about the passion but but we've fallen asleep and we've kind of woken up and we're going wait what's going on with the passion you know there there's episodes before this one and really it begins with season one episode one and that's the first word of the title for my message tonight from paradise to passover to passion so we got to talk about paradise we got to talk about passover before we talk about the passion so let's talk a bit about these terms and what these terms mean and you'll see on the outline there as i'm unpacking these terms i have five quick points for us they are remember reflect repent remove and receive and hopefully the alliteration of the r's helps us to Uh, remember, and that is the first point, remember, reflect, repent, remove, receive. So to understand Good Friday, we we need to have these points in our mind because these points are essential. We're in an era where we talk about things that are non-essential and essential, so that's a, a familiar phrase to us. These are essential terms for us tonight as we reflect upon, you know, what's going on with Good Friday? Good Friday's in the passion. What's going on with the passion? What comes before the passion? Well, we'll start with episode one, Uh, in season one, and we'll look at these, and I'll unpack remembrance, reflecting, repentance, uh, removing, and also receiving. Now, more than understanding, uh, it is it is my, it, 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 it really, more than understanding, what's important to me is that we're not just hearers or understanders of the word, but actually that we are animated by the word, that we are responding to the word. So more than giving you a lesson tonight on the history of the passion and what comes before it and the episodes and the seasons before it, uh, my, my heart, standing before you here tonight uh, with squirrels in the trees and sketchy speakers and cold hands, is that in our hearts there would be great warmth and that in our heads and our minds and, and the rest we'd be focused not just for purposes of comprehension but for purposes of transformation. That we would leave tonight understanding Good Friday but we would leave tonight transformed by Good Friday, more importantly and specifically transformed by the Lord of Good Friday. So Good Friday, what's it all about? Why is it good? 
Well, uh, Good Friday is a very special holiday for Christians. It commemorates the excruciating crucifixion of Jesus and his bloody death on Calvary. While some fringe traditions debate uh, around the days of the week when things happen, there are, are some who think it didn't happen on Friday, they think it happened on a Wednesday or whatever, there is strong historical evidence and good biblical reason to maintain that in Jesus' final week, which we know historically took place, it ended with him dying on a Friday. It was a cold and deceiving Friday, to which the adjective good might seem a little bit unfitting. I mean, why call it good? Especially in light of all this excruciating pain that I've been talking about, and all of the blood that will be spilled on this Friday, this historic Friday. I mean, why, why call it good? So as it relates to the question, why is it good, tonight's message is going to get into why call it good. And I know that many of you here tonight already know why it's good. Uh, and with that, let me caution those of you who say, I know why it's good. Let me caution you. Uh, with a familiar saying that is uh, about familiarity, namely, familiarity has a way of breeding content. That is to say that knowledge of something or knowledge of someone can lead us to a loss of the specialness of that thing or that person. If, if the quarantines haven't taught us anything, it's taught us a lot about the specialness of being able to gather with the church and taking that for granted. And, and with regard to why is Good Friday good, if you say, I know why it's good, okay, but, but let's let the specialness of that thing, that thing that we call Good Friday, really sink in tonight, and more importantly, the person of the Christ sink in tonight. Instead of saying to ourselves, you know, oh, I know, I, I know what that's all about, let us, let us sit back and just appreciate and stand in awe about what it is that we have gathered here tonight to talk about. Um, and it's going to begin with this first point on your outline, remember. Let me give you little phrases if you're able to jot down notes or just keep these in your mind. I want to start by talking about remembering what has happened. Remember what has happened. We need to remember what has happened. That's, in, that's important to our faith. And part of remembering entails that one already knows. You can't remember what you do not know beforehand. You can't, you know, oh, remember that? You know, you weren't there. How do you, how do you remember that? You have to remember things that you already know, things that you've experienced. Otherwise, it would be informing rather than remembering. That said, remembering is a really big deal for the Christian faith because the Christian faith is a historic faith that is rooted in events in the past that call us in the present to remember. Mind you, our faith isn't just in ancient days. It's also in present days. So as we look back on, on things that have happened in the past, they inform the present for us. And along with looking to the past, we also have to live in the present with a mindfulness of the future. So our faith isn't just a present faith that we're living out or a past faith that we're remembering, but it's also a faith that entails uh, things about the future. Our faith is historical and eschatological. We are awaiting an eschaton, an end, an end that is secured by the historical Jesus himself. And this end we actually experience here right now in the present by his mercies and by his power through the Spirit, which stirs a hope in us for what lies ahead, not merely abstractly, eschatologically, in the last days, but in the practical. I'm talking about not just the future, oh, Jesus is going to come back, you know, the, the stuff that we talk about, Book of Revelation. I'm talking about the practical, like tomorrow, Saturday. What's going to go on Saturday? What's going to go on tonight? What's going to go on with the emails that you're going to get this week or the people who are going to stress you out this week? I'm talking about trusting him in the future in very practical ways. As it relates to tomorrow and, and trusting in God, we grow in trust as we remember this first point, what has happened. As we remember specifically God's track record, we recall what has happened in the past and we recall his, his faithfulness in human history through informing our present. 
So this first point, remember what has happened. The first point on your outline is going to serve to help us begin tonight's message. And I want to begin tonight's message, in fact, with the very beginning of it all, season one, episode one. Calvary's context begins with creation. Paradise precedes passion. The context is crucial. This is where the scriptures begin, in fact, uh, with creation. And in fact, creation assumes a, a creator. Where you have creation, you, you must have a creator. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. The cause of the universe must be what the universe is not because it wasn't there before the universe was there. So logically, while the universe is physical, the cause of the universe must be non-physical. While the universe is spaced and time, the cause of the universe must then logically and scientifically be eternal. While the universe itself is impersonal, right? Planets don't talk to you, stars don't talk to you, rocks don't talk to you. The cause of the universe then must be personal or, 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 or a, a talking and communicating and revealing and personal being would be a simple way of saying it. This is the one responsible for bringing the universe into existence. This is the one revealing God who has made the creation and is disclosing himself to the creation. This one that I come talking to you about tonight from the very beginning is the one who didn't uh, create the world like some deadbeat dad to leave the universe to figure out who he was. Some of us have had parents who have left us. This is not the creator of the world. He has not left us to find him. He has not left us to go on Ancestry.com. He has not left us a little cotton swab to try and figure out who he is. Oh no, he is a loving father who stays and cares and reveals and loves. Even further, the creator is not only father, but he is son in spirit. Indeed, the creator eternally dwells as one God in three persons, the father, the son, and the spirit. Dwelling not just eternally, but perfectly, in perfect communion, lacking nothing, therefore. Because of this, creation was, by definition, going back to these terms non-essential and essential, the creation itself, the cosmos itself, is non-essential. We know, scientifically speaking, it was not always here. There was what's known as the cosmological singularity, and the universe comes into existence. It was not always here. It didn't have to be. The creator did not have to create. He was under no obligation. Further, he was under no need. He's perfect. So you see, for example, God wasn't in need of company or in need of entertainment or in need of some sort of an existential feeling. You complete me, like that line in Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire to his, uh, you know, his girlfriend or whatever. You complete me. God wasn't trying to complete himself by making the creation. God is complete in himself. God has love within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God is perfect. He is lacking nothing. So then creation isn't an act where God's trying to fulfill himself or give himself something as though he were lacking. Giving life, giving light, giving love. This, these were the reasons for him to create. It was a gift. Creation itself is an act of grace. And so as, as, as we seek to understand tonight, Good Friday, passion, what's that about? We begin with the very beginning. We begin with the opening of the book of Genesis, which you have written on your outline there, Genesis 1 through 3. The first two chapters record God creating, and we see God, and we see God's love in the first two chapters. You move quickly into the third chapter, and you read about God's unrequited love. You read about humanity rebelling against him. And subsequently, the, those who revolted against his, his love make a big mess out of creation. What we call sin comes in, and sin brings death. You've rebelled against the one who has given you life. The consequence of that crime is the taking back of life. 
And with the taking back of life comes not just biological death, but social death and relational death. So we then begin to incur dysfunction with one another and with the creation around us. And therein, in that, we existentially experience things like shame, the awareness of nakedness as it is captured in Genesis chapter 3. And God comes to the naked and God comes to the guilty and he clothes them, we read in the book of Genesis. He clothes them with, with an animal, we read in the book of Genesis. It is a sacrifice. Something that was innocent, something that didn't have it coming, takes the penalty for something that is guilty. We read in the very book of Genesis. So if we are to understand the passion, what I submit to you is that the passion in Good Friday is a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of an innocent one who is dying in the place of guilty ones. We go back to the very beginning in paradise and we see we see God in his love and creation. We see unrequited love. We see God in his grace responding to that love with the gift of an innocent life in the place of the guilty. And as we follow those images through the storyline, it takes us up to Good Friday. So first, we need to remember what has happened. We need to remember that Genesis story. We need to remember that God clothed the guilty, that, that God responded with grace to those who deserve death by taking the life of another so as to cover them in that moment. And we need to, we need to follow that storyline and see that God responded not just in clothing them in their guilt, but also giving them a promise that he would send one through the woman who would overthrow the rebellion. He would send one through the woman, through procreation, through childbearing. He would send one, he promises in the book of Genesis, who would come and would restore and renew the fallen creation the dysfunction, the death, the disease, the darkness. One would come, he promises. So he clothes them. He gives grace to the guilty. He gives promise that one is going to come. That promise, as you follow the storyline from Paradise Lost, you see it is passed to the historic figure Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people that become what we refer to as the nation of Israel. And they become a people of promise. You move from the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we find the, the children of Israel are in bondage. They're in slavery. So the story from the beginning of the Bible is a story that now moves full circle. We have moved from this story about unrequited love of humanity re re rebelling against God. And therein, in their rebellion against God, the giver of life, death, and dysfunction comes. Therein, slavery to sin comes. And you follow the storyline at the end of Genesis, and you move into the second book of the Bible, this book of Exodus, and you find that those to whom God has promised are once again in slavery. That's the full circle. It begins with paradise lost, slavery to sin, and then it moves to those to whom God has promised, and they are now in a new form of slavery, slavery in Egypt. And just as God came to humanity, our father Adam and our mother Eve, and he promised them liberation, so too he comes to the people of Israel and gives them liberation through the great prophet Moses. So remember, point number one, what has happened? Point number two, re reflect on what God has done. This takes us to the story of the children of Israel, moving from paradise up to the story of Passover. Passover, the ancient Hebrews referred to it as Pesah. Pesah is likely derived from a Hebrew word, Pasah, which means to pass over. It is a fitting word because it commemorates when God passed over the land of Egypt in judgment to deliver his people from slavery. That which he, God, did not pass over was met with death. Uh, the, the consequences of rebellion against God is death. It is a fair judgment that he brings. And so, you know, in response to 
to uh, the critics of the Bible that often like to say that God was okay with slavery. When you read the book of Exodus, you see God actually visits death upon slave masters. God brings death to slave masters and their homes in the book of, of, of Exodus. God deals a literal death blow to the structures and the systems of slavery and the forces of darkness through the prophet Moses. Moving from Genesis, Paradise Lost, up to this story of Passover, Pesach. Through Pesach, God delivers his people from oppressive powers. Uh, we, we know the famous line from the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, let my people go. The book of Exodus records the historic events of, of God's people being let go. Mind you, it, it is not an easy letting go. God brings it by divine judgment. And the divine judgment ends with this pasah, this passing over. A passing over that brings about death, a passing over that ultimately brings about deliverance. God leads them out of the place of slavery. God liberates them. God sets them free. God calls them by faith, by the prophet Moses. His people are instructed to, once again, here we see an animal losing its life. In Pesah, we see uh, Moses calling on the people to take a lamb, and a lamb would die. And the blood of the lamb would be placed on the doorposts of their homes. And the death of the innocent animal there, going back to paradise being lost, going back to clothing the naked, going back to covering the guilty, the innocent given for the transgressor. It's a reminder that death is a fitting penalty for sin, a reminder that God is gracious, that he keeps them alive but accepts the death of another. Further, that no man can presume on God, as we're reflecting in this second point. We remember what has happened, the creator God, paradise being lost. We reflect on what God has done, the promise that was given to Israel, and his hand in this act of Passover. We're, we're reminded in this that we've all sinned, that we all fall short, that we, we need something to die in our place because we ourselves can't quite accomplish that. So then historically, the prophet and the people, they have a deliverance that they did not deserve. It was a gift that was given to them. Their oppressors certainly had what they had coming their way. They were slave masters, they were oppressors, they were wicked. But by faith, Israel was given a sacrifice and a, and a death that they also didn't deserve, that they didn't have coming either. They didn't stand in a position where they could say to God, oh God, you owe this to us or something, for they too have sinned. They were saved by the power of God's word. They were saved from the wrath that had come on the land. And with the judgment of death on the land and a, a judgment of death on the backs of, of slave masters, God actually cripples the nation of Egypt. He, he cripples the oppressors of the people and he gives them a liberation and he does it with a short window of escape. That underground railroad was coming fast and you had to jump on that thing. There was a little window and in that little window of liberation, there was no time for packing. There was no time even for bread to rise. So you, you, would, you would have to pack what was the staple diet in those ancient days, that is bread. You would have to pack whatever you could to eat because there wasn't time for bread to rise. And this brings us to the celebration of Passover, one that is going on e even to this day uh, all around the world in the Jewish community. They go back to that moment when God liberated their people. They go back to that moment when God said, there's a small window of time. You have to get out. I have visited your oppressors with death. You have a, a small window for you to get out. And there's not enough time even for your bread to rise. Uh, that is a staple in that ancient world. There is a reason why the Lord taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily what? Bread. Bread was important. That's what you ate. And there's no drive-throughs. There's no, nothing you could roll through, no Paneras or whatever, where you can go grab some bread along the way. And so they, they are going to have to eat on the run. And they are told to take then unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a kind of bread that is prepared without raising agents in them. 
Because of this, unleavened breads don't taste as good as leavened breads, let's be honest, right? Uh, you know, those flat breads aren't as tasty as donuts. Donuts are the epitome of, of all gloriousness. Donuts are just amazing. I mean, leaven is an amazing thing. Yeast is an amazing thing. Uh, the flatbreads don't taste as good. You might say, well, what about garlic naans or yummy flatbreads or pizza? Or <laughs> no, no, they, those have leaven in them too. The ones without the leaven, I'm just saying they don't taste as good. You know, pizza, donuts, okay, really good, right? Uh, Sunday on communion, what we have, we, we use uh, from this tradition what's known as the matzah. It is a bread that is prepared according to ancient tradition going back to these days where God said, you got a small window of time to get out of there. I've broken the backs of your oppressors, passed over. I have passed over you. I have brought judgment upon them. I have liberated you. Now get the heck out of there. There is not time. Don't pack any bread that has yeast in it. you got to get out of there. And so they had unleavened bread. And thinking about, you know, bread uh, with COVID, I don't know about you, but my social media has especially uh, been blowing up around the phenomenon of the uh, sourdough starters. <laughs> Have you seen the sourdough starters? Uh, it's a phenomenon. If you look at on Instagram, hashtag sourdough, there is 4.6 million posts around sourdough starters. And there's all these recipes. And I'm going, what is going on? I know all these people who don't even know each other, and their, their feeds are like, sourdough, sourdough starters. You know, They're on the buy nothing pages. I got a sourdough starter. I don't even know what it is. So I Google, like, what's up with the sourdough? And I got sucked into this long vortex of sourdough stuff. For those of you who know Landon, who leads worship a lot, and who just opened a pizza shop, I made the mistake of calling him because he's all about that yeast life working at a pizza shop, and just he overloaded me on this whole thing. Incidentally, it was like a phenomenon around COVID because people are at home, and they're just, you know, like, hey, I'm in the kitchen. Let's do something. And apparently, uh, there's like a yeast shortage going on, and apparently, you can make sourdough without yeast. So people are just really geeking out on it, and they're making sourdough, and they're sharing their recipes online. All of this to say... The phenomenon of getting out of town and having bread without yeast, these are all like, you know, it's not so foreign. I'm giving you this illustration so that as you're looking at the text and you're thinking about this in your, in your mind, you know, you, you kind of go, okay, like yeast, bread, getting out of Dodge, liberation. These are all sort of concepts that we're familiar with. Now, in the case of the Jewish people being rescued from slavery, it, was, it wasn't so much like, hey, this is a cool recipe or whatever. They just needed to get out of there. They didn't have time. This is Red Dawn, uh, for those of you who are in my era. You know, you got to get up in that pickup truck with Patrick Swayze and get to the mountain. There's not time for you to pack stuff. Israel had to run. It was a matter of time before their uh, oppressors recouped from wrath, and then they were going to take all that pent-up energy that they had, and they were going to get revenge from them. And you know how the story ends. That's exactly what happened. They try to get out of Dodge, and, and God actually rescues them through the Red Sea, and he crushes uh, the enemies of his people in waters. And subsequently, the, 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 the people of Israel moved then into the wilderness. They are liberated. The Underground Railroad has rescued them, but they are now in the wilderness, and they are commanded by God to remember. We read in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 5 through 8, they are called to reflect on this Passover event, how they deserved death, but God passed over them, and how that passing over was tied to an innocent life that was given to them, and how they were told not to pack bread with leaven, but to get the heck out of there, and how now they're in the wilderness with this matzah, and that's their sustenance, and, and, and we move from that matzah, and we move from Moses quickly into the book of Mark, and now would you open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Mark? We're stepping now into passion. We're getting closer up to passion. We're just revving up. 
we're getting some context. We fell asleep watching Netflix. We're getting some context. We've talked about Paradise Lost. We've talked about Passover. Because Good Friday, Maundy Thursday, these, these tie in these themes of Passover. And they tie in this theme of, of sacrifice. And so these are going to become important concepts for us. And hopefully our time spent talking about them will serve you well as we step into it. Okay. As we step from Moses to Mark. We have moved hundreds of years, obviously, uh, forward into history. The promise that was made from the very, very beginning of one who would come, that passed to Abram, to the children of, of Abram, into the land of promise, they get there. They, the, a king is raised up. This is a long story short. David. And to David is promised. That promise of one who would come through the seed of the woman, who would liberate the people, not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin, and would renew the creation from the devastating impacts of rebellion against the creator God. All, all of those promises are, are coming to head. The children of Israel, that promise that was given to them, as you follow the storyline, just before the very beginning of Mark, the children of Israel were kicked out of the land. Foreign empires, Assyria, Babylon, had come and crushed the people. And God used that as a part of disciplining the, his, his own people, his children, as a result of their sin. God has raised up a remnant, brought them back to the land. In fact, if you're with us on Sunday mornings, we're currently studying the book of Ezra, which is the post-exilic history as the people come back into the land. They begin to rebuild the very temple that Jesus would walk into. And, and, and there's an empire, the, the Medo-Persian empire, that raises up against Assyria and Babylon. It's the new kid on the block, a little bit bigger. It could put the beat down on those foreign powers. And that new kid on the block, the Medo-Persian Empire, says to the descendants of Abram, y'all can go back to your land, your beef isn't with us, you know, go back. And so they go back, they restore that land, and that's the land that Jesus steps into. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Look at the very beginning of it. It says, in the beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, wake, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, so, so again, I didn't want to start there because it's like waking up with the Netflix and everything. Okay, he's quoting Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet goes back to the, to the people, the children of Abram, the, the ones that were liberated by Moses, the ones that were in the land. So he's talking about the, the prophets, Isaiah. They prophesied that a day was coming when one from the seed of the woman, from the seed of Abram, from the seed of David was going to come. So, so we have all that in mind, paradise lost, Passover, and we're, we're moving now to, to this historical figure, Jesus. Mark speaks to his Jewish audience living hundreds of years later, and he ties it to Isaiah. He uses this word, uh, gospel, which is a word that literally means good news. It comes from a Greek word, euangelion. In Mark's day, the word euangelion was a word that carried with it a political connotation. I've shared with uh, those of you who are part of Delray Church uh, in a recent sermon series at the end of 2020 about the archaeological find of the Prene calendar inscription that was just a few years before the time of Jesus and how we see the word euangelion, that word gospel, being used of, of Caesars and the political connotation that that term euangelion, good news or gospel, brings with it. It's kind of lost in our context today. You know, say, man, I was listening to some gospel music, Kurt Franklin. Uh, people aren't like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, gospel music. That's just sort of a genre. But euangelion in the ancient world carried political connotation. It was politically overloaded because Christ was making a claim that he was over the Caesars, over the rulers of the world. He was greater than Augustus. Allegiance to him 
was to, 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 to follow after and to place him over all other identities, right, left, so on and so forth. And that'll get you in trouble in the ancient world. Heck, it'll get you unfriended on Facebook today. Let's be honest. Okay, so verse 4, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, look at the text, Mark 1, verse 4, appeared in the wilderness, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if, with the storyline in mind, quoting the prophet Isaiah just a moment ago, John appears, and when you have that storyline in mind, you go, oh, John sounds a lot like the Jewish prophets. He's coming in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness. Oh, that's interesting. He's putting them inside of water. There's a baptism of water going on. Oh, Israel was rescued through the water in that whole Egypt uh, underground railroad thing. Oh, weren't they? Oh, he, he actually looks a lot like the prophet John that we read about inside of the Hebrew Bible. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized. Baptizo is a word that means immersed in water. He's putting them inside of water in the Jordan River, it says, and they're, verse 5, confessing their sins. So having the Passover story, the, the Exodus story, you see here in Mark chapter 1, there's a new Exodus that's beginning. There's a new, new post-exile that's taking place in this historic figure, John, and the one who's coming after him, this historic figure, Jesus. There's a new era that's beginning for God's people. And it's beginning with what? Water wilderness. It's, uh, it's all that narrative that we've been talking about. And it's beginning personally with what? According to verse 5, the confession of sin, repentance. That brings me to the third R on your outline. Remember, number one, what has happened? We talk about the creator and paradise loss and uh, 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 the creation rebelling against the creator and bringing death upon itself. We reflect on what God has done and his promises to humanity that have been carried through his covenant people, Israel. And then thirdly, we come to repent from where you have gone, where you have been. Repentance for the ancient Hebrews was known as teshuvah. Teshuvah literally means to return. Teshuvah pictures the history of God's people being exiled out of their land and coming back to the land. Teshuvah. The word repent for an ancient Hebrew carried that like, oh, we're going back to the land. We're going back to the place of promise. We're going from the place of rebellion to the place of repentance. We're going from the place of wandering to the place of worship. We're coming back to the land of promise. Uh, now, Mark is uh, writing originally, as far as the ancient manuscripts that we have, in Greek. And he uses the word metanoeo, which also means to turn. It, it, it carries with it this idea of turning from something, turning your back on something, and turning to something else. So I have a tree behind me. If I'm metanoeo, I turn from that tree, and I turn to this stand here, you see? And so, too, as it relates of repenting from where you have gone, we're turning from sin and rebelling against God to turn not just from stopping that, but to turn to God to live for him. That's metanoeo. Teshuvah carries with it that imagery of actually going back to the place of promise. So, so that helps you to understand these terms and what's going on. Evangelion, gospel, teshuvah, it brings all this imagery. Paradise lost, Passover, people of Israel, Exodus, liberation, back in the land. Here comes John. Man, he looks like a prophet. There in the waters, wilderness. Okay, are you tracking? I hope so. Verse 9. In those days, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw this, the heavens opening and a spirit like a dove descending upon him. In, in scripture, that, that sign of the dove inaugurates a new age. We think, for example, of, of Noah and the ark and the dove coming, and it symbolized a new age, a new era has begun. 
And a voice from the heavens, verse 11, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit impels him, verse 12, into the wilderness and Jesus goes. Verse 13, he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he's with wild beasts and the animals are ministering to him and John has been taken into custody and Jesus is in Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Teshuvah, metanoeo, turn, come. The overtones of wilderness, the overtones of wickedness, the, the, the language of 40 days. Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before they came to the land of promise. Israel came to the Jordan River when they entered into the land of promise. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God. And when Israel came to that land, what happened in the Jordan? The waters split open at the presence of God. And behold, as I've declared to you here tonight, there is one God who eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The historic Jesus of Nazareth existed before he was born. He is the eternal Son in the flesh. He is the presence of God. So when he steps in the waters of the River Jordan, like that ark, the presence of God manifests in that theophanic moment as the waters split open. This time the waters don't split, the heavens split. And this time a voice rings out from heaven and it's the Father. And he says, that's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit comes and carries him and takes him of all places into the wilderness. Again, there you see those typology and those images of Israel in the wilderness. What happened to Israel in the wilderness? They wandered. They wandered. What happens to Jesus in the, in the wilderness? He overcomes. What happened to our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, in the book of Genesis when they encountered the serpent? They, they, they gave themselves to him. They listened to him. They, they followed him. What happens to this son of Adam, the second Adam? He overcomes. He doesn't listen. He clings to the word of the Lord. He brings Teshuvah for his people. I'm bringing you back to the land. I have a kingdom. The kingdom is coming in me. The time is fulfilled. It is at hand. Metanoeo, Teshuvah, turn and come back. The language of the text says that they were em emptying out of Jerusalem to go down to the Jordan, and then they're coming back. The imagery there is of, of the land going through an exile. We're leaving Jerusalem, and then we're coming back into the land. Exile is over. A new age has dawned. The spirit has descended like a dove, just like in the days of Noah. New age. Verse 16, draw your eyes at the text. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 18, I love this verse. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They left everything that they had to follow after him. And it says immediately. It, it says immediately. This brings me to the next point on your outline. Remember what, what has happened post-paradise, post, post the fall, and what we have coming to us, the death that we deserve. Remember what has happened. Reflect on what God has done through the promises that he has made to bring one and through the people of Israel. Repent from where you have gone. You have wandered. Repent. Teshuvah, metanoeo, come back to the place of worship. And now this point, remove. Remove what has gotten in the way. Remove what holds you back. For these men... There is a moment that is taking place in human history. God is raising up a remnant from his covenant people, Israel. And he goes to them and he calls them to himself. He, he, he tells fishermen to leave their nets. That's their income. That's like telling an Uber driver to leave your Prius. <laughs> you know, like telling a chef to leave the kitchen. Like, that's how I make money, man. What are you talking about? You know, I, what do you mean leave my nets? I'm not going to be able to feed my family. No, leave your nets. And immediately they do. 
They do so by the power of the word. He speaks and they respond. Just like the God of creation, he speaks and the creation is formed. He, he calls and, and you come. Just like Moses, let my people go, and they're let go. It's by the power of the word. And as we read the gospel accounts, we see this with Jesus. He's drawing people to himself. And it's just like that storyline. It's just like that Passover. It's just like what we read in the Hebrew Bible of God raising up a remnant from his people to fulfill his promises. So Jesus raises up a little remnant. He gets these 12 disciples, and they're following him around. And all these themes of exodus and exile keep coming up. Now, for sake of time, move from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 14. And Mark 14 brings us up to passion. We've covered a lot of ground. We've moved from paradise to Passover. We've seen themes of, 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 of this at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And now we move up to passion. And this is getting us ready for uh, understanding this evening. And again, as I said, by way of introduction, not just understanding, but being transformed by this. Mark 14 begins with Passover. Mark 14, 1. Now, the Passover... The unleavened bread, no donuts allowed, uh, was two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to seize him by stealth and to kill him, and they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Aren't we glad that we live in days where there's not riots anymore, right? Uh, recall now, in the days of old, right, there were the slave masters who resisted God in the Passover. God, God said, sacrifice the lamb, I will pass over. There were the slave masters who said, you're not taking them from me. You're not messing with my economy. You're not messing with our systems, our structures. No, we're not doing that. We're not listening to you. We're not believing your word. No, that's not taking place. There were slave masters who resisted the Passover back in ancient days. And now there are new slave masters that are resisting this new Passover that is taking place. The priests, the scribes, they want to come and they want to steal him. They want to kill him. But they say, hold up, wait. We can't do that right now because there's all these people who are in town for the festival. What is the festival? It's Pesach, it's Passover, it's a holiday. Remember, they, they're supposed to celebrate it every year ever since Moses and the Exodus, and that's what they do. And the Passover, it, it's like Thanksgiving, but it's like Thanksgiving on caffeine. It's caffeinated thanks, Thanksgiving, right? Like it, 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 it stretches out for a week. So Passover is a week-long celebration. It's going on right now in our culture if you have Jewish friends. It, go, it goes on for a whole week. And it's not just like a week, but it, it's also a pilgrimage holiday. So in ancient days, it's what's known as the Shalash Relagim. You're, you're actually supposed to take your family back to the land of promise to celebrate this. So kind of like in Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, you might go to see your family from wherever you're from. You make a pilgrimage. Uh, Passover, you're supposed to go back to the land and celebrate this. So, so the new slave masters that are oppressing the people and holding them in bondage at this point are saying, well, we can't do anything about this because everyone's in town. It's going to make it a little bit hard. It's going to make it a little bit awkward. Now, in verses 3 through 11, I'm not going to read them for purposes of moving quickly. Jesus goes and stays in the home of Simon the leper. Do you see that? It's not exactly where you might think about spending the last week of your life. I got one, I, you know, I got a week left. You know, where should we go? You know, let's go to Palm Springs. I was thinking I'd just go stay with the leper. <laughs> like, that's not exactly where you would want to go. In particular, it's not exactly where the, the politickers would have wanted you to go, right? Somebody call his PR man, call his publicist. What is he doing? Like, he's at an all-time high. Uh, pa Palm Sunday has taken place. Everyone loves Jesus. The paparazzi's there. TMZ is just buzzing with Jesus stuff. Oh, my gosh. You know, TikTok Jesus. Look at him. Palm branches everywhere. He's at an all-time high. And he's like, I'm going to go stay at the leper's house. 
That was not something that you would do. That would be viewed as non-kosher. People would think that you're not spiritual. Meanwhile, in these verses, we read about a marginalized, nameless woman who brings an alabaster jar to anoint Jesus for, of all things, his burial. We see that she sees what's going on, and there's a bit of a role reversal taking place because the people who are in power are resisting what they ought to see. And, and we see those on the margins seeing what they should see. And we see she gets rebuked of, of, of all people, of the remnant that Jesus was raising up, one of the 12, the one named Judas. Judas goes for the jugular, and he attacks her for doing this. He says she's wasting money. And we know what money buys, right? What does money buy? Power. And Judas plays it cool, of course, and tries to act like it's not about power, but rather it's about the poor. Like a good politician, he uses the poor for power. It's all lies. And he's exposed by his actions. You see, he responds by literally going after this and selling Jesus out for money to the pony courts who have enough Roman power to, 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 to grab Jesus and get him out of the way. We're reminded of the hour, verse 12, look at the text. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, animal being sacrificed, oh yeah, paradise, there was an animal sacrifice. Oh yeah, Passover, there was an animal sacrifice. Oh, here's Jesus. He's setting it up for himself to be the one who was sacrificed. And he says to his disciples, and his disciples say to him, rather, verse 12, where, where, do we, where, where are we going to go, you know, sell, let's get out of the leper's house, because that's not cool. Where, where are we going to go? You know, what, what, what's going on? And he sent two disciples, verse 13, Mark 14, verse 13. Go into the city, and a man you will meet will be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the rabbi says, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat uh, the Passover with my disciples? Uh, I would love to have those powers, right? You know, it's like, just go and find the guy and just be like, hey, the rabbi, you know, and then all of a sudden you get in the Airbnb or whatever. It's all set up. So Jesus is fully in control of the situation. This is divine power. And in his humanity, he has followers, of course, as he's been moving around doing itinerant preaching. So uh, clearly this guy with the pitcher of the water has been instructed by him in, uh, in, in some form. And so he sends his disciples to go. The Airbnb is supernaturally set up. And he says, verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room furnished, ready, prepare it for us. And the disciples went out and came to the city and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So the narrative is showing you this story, but it's a supernatural story. He's in control. Uh, in Star Wars terms, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Like the force is at work. He's on the move. He's controlling everything. Things have been arranged. Jesus has his disciples there, and he tells them to go set up for Passover. Verse 16 talks about preparation. What are they preparing for? Well, Passover. What, what is Passover? Okay, Exodus. We've talked about that. Well, what practically do you do? We haven't talked about that. We've talked a lot about the history, but what practically do you do? Well, you, you make a meal. You make a meal, and you have lamb with it. Uh, okay, you have lamb with it. Oh, because there was a lamb that was sacrificed. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. So you have lamb with it. And you have the unleavened bread with it. And you have different herbs and spices that remind you of different things about the history of the Exodus and what have you. So they're going to have to go and prepare. And part of that means finding a lamb. This is, you know, ancient world. Like, we've got to get a lamb. And what are you going to have to do with that lamb in a Jewish culture? You're going to have to go to the temple and offer sacrifice. You're going to stand in a line. I'll spare you all the historical background here. But you're going to stand in a line for like four hours holding a lamb. Going, all right, we got to get this over with, and it's going to take like four hours, and you're going to run out of things to talk about. And eventually, a priest is going to come and slit the throat of an animal, and you're going to go, oh my gosh, and then you're going to walk back, and you're going to have some lamb, and you're going to set up the room or whatever, and it's really going to be fresh in your mind the loss of a life for the guilty. It's a part of this ritual. 
And then part of preparation also involves something called hamatz. And in hamatz, you, you move before Passover begins and you go through your house and you have to remove all of the, the donuts, the good stuff. You gotta get all the leaven stuff out of your house in preparation. So Jesus sends the disciples, they gotta get a lamb and they gotta prepare the room. They gotta get anything out of this room that they're gonna be in that's leavened. And leaven, of course, uh, is a part of that because you go back, like I explained, in the Passover and there wasn't time for all that and whatever, and God was using that. And so this is a part of the ritual. You gotta get rid of all the leavened stuff. Teshuvah, you're turning, you're repenting, you're getting rid of stuff from in your home. This is that R on the outline, remove. You are removing, you're getting rid of stuff in your home that, that, that is leaven, but leaven inside of scripture stands for something bigger. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of sin, in fact. Uh, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, since we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 55, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's the sin, it's evil, it's wickedness. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 6 and 7 and 8, you can read about how he used leaven as a, as, a, as, a, as a picture of sin that sort of spreads. And he tells them, you know, get rid of the leaven. Remove it from your midst. So the hamats, throwing the donuts out, it's one thing to sort of do spring cleaning, get your kitchen all clean or whatever, and throw it out. But it's, it's a part of something bigger. It's God saying, for this week, that's off limits. What, what's fine, it's fine in and of itself, but it's symbolizing something more. And for the disciples, understanding that ritual and preparing that room, it's supposed to bring you back to the ur hamitz, which is not just removing, not just removing the donuts from the kitchen. You don't just remove them, you actually destroy them, be ur hamitz, which is you take it and you burn it outside of your home. Which, which would really just be horrible. Because you're like, can't we just put them in a Ziploc bag and then bring them back in once this week is over? Because <laughs> they're still going to be delicious. No, no, no. The Urhamits, you actually take it outside of your house and you destroy it. It's a symbol. It, it, it's to teach the people. In fact, that's what fasting is. Like, food is good, amen. But fasting is when you refrain from enjoying something that is good to remind yourself who, who's really in control, God. The Urhamits, you take all of this out you not just get rid of it, put it in a Ziploc bag, but you destroy it. That in and of itself is a, is a sermon, is it not? Uh, that there are things in our lives that we, not, we need not just to put in a Ziploc bag and put them over there as if we're in control of it. We really need to destroy it so that we can never go back to it. You need to remove that which is unclean. Jesus comes, they do that, they prepare the room. Okay, they got the lamb, they've got everything cleaned up. We read in verse 18, they're reclining at the table, and Jesus says, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me, verse 18. He's going to be betrayed. And he said to them, verse 20, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me into the bowl. So they got those herbs and spices on the table, and the lamb, and the little you know, matzah, the little flatbreads and everything. People are dipping. If you imagine, you know, some nachos and some cheese and you're dipping it. Can you imagine you got some chicken wings and you're going in for the ranch and your friend is like the one who dips, the, you know, the wing and the ranch at the same time as me will betray me. You're like, whoa, you know, you drop that wing like, what are you talking about, man? Come on. The Frito and the queso, the Tostito and the salsa. At the same time, Jesus says that one's going to betray me. Verse 21, for the son of man is to is to. Uh, is to go just as it is written of him, but what of the man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed? For it is good for him, for that man had he not been born. Now Jesus here is quoting prophecy. He's saying like th this is a part of the sovereign unfolding of this saga, this Netflix seasons and episodes that I've been talking about. There's prophecy that the Father would send the Son 
that the son would fulfill the promise to our mother Eve that there would be one who would come and renew to the father Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, that there would be one who would come and who would bring a kingdom and restore the earth. That, that, that one has come. And the prophet said that that one would be betrayed, which is fitting, full story circle. Remember the creator and the unrequited love story and how he creates and gives life and, and they rebel against him. And so the father sends his son and the same thing takes place. They rebel and they reject him. And it's in prophecy, so we know that beforehand. He says, the son of man, as it is written, draw your eyes back at the text, verse 22, while they're eating, he took some bread and he began blessing it and he broke it and he said to them, this is my body. Now in Passover, they, they have a, a book that they use known as the Haggadah. The Haggadah kind of guides you through the meal. There's different cups. We actually talked about this this past Sunday in the sermon online. There's different cups that symbolize different things, different foods on the table that symbolize different things. And, uh, you know, the head of the home would have a Haggadah, and they work through it. And, hey, hey, this symbolized this bread. And we've already covered, what does the bread mean? What does the matzah mean? Oh, that goes back to Exodus. And God was like, you guys got to get out of there. No time for leaven. Leaven becomes a metaphor for bad stuff, right? But Jesus grabs the matzah, and he says something that's different from just the Exodus. He says, this is my body. That's not a part of the Haggadah. Imagine being at Thanksgiving and your crazy uncle grabs the turkey leg and he's like, this is my body. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, shoot. You know, somebody get uh, Uncle Stan some coffee because he's tripping. Uh, he's had too many of the cups on the table. Let's see if he drank the Elijah cup too, right? Like he's, he's had too much. What do you mean the turkey leg is your body? What are you talking about? This isn't in the Haggadah. Oh, but it is in the prophecy. Oh, but it is in the story, unless you've been falling asleep on episodes, wake up from paradise to Passover, now to the passion. It's all unfolding. The eternal son has come in the flesh. This is my body. It's a symbol of that. That matzah symbolizes that I've taken on flesh. Not flesh in the abstract, but the flesh of Abram and the flesh of David. Truly, I say to you, verse 25, I will never drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is he drinking? What is he talking about? Look at, look at verse 24. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant that's poured out for many. Those cups symbolize the blood of the lamb and the Passover. What are you talking about? I have fulfilled Israel's history. I've recapitulated it. I was in the wilderness for 40. I came through the waters. The waters, right, the whole, that, that whole thing, I've done all of that. I have fulfilled everything. Where my people have wandered, I have fulfilled. Where they've gone astray, I have obeyed. I have not. Truly, I say to you, the kingdom is going to come. I have accomplished this. And then he leads them, verse uh, 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 26, in singing a hymn, and they go off to the Mount of Olives. In the Haggadah, this is what we studied this past Sunday, Psalm 118, it's a part of the Haggadah. So he leads them in Psalm 118, and he talks about the rejected cornerstone and everything that we discussed this past Sunday. He leads them in this. And he prophesies to them, verse 27, that many will fall away. The, the shepherd will be struck down, the sheep will scatter. But after this, I will, I will rise up. Look at the text, verse 28. I will rise up, and I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And when he does, the shepherd will not wait for them to find him. No, he goes ahead of them, like he says. And so, too, with regard to our own salvation, God is not waiting for us to come to him. Behold, brothers and sisters, the, the great shepherd has come to seek and save that which is lost. Before his death, we see Jesus interceding for his disciples in Gethsemane. Quickly, to move through the text, draw your eyes at verse 41. 
He comes to them. He finds them sleeping, you see, in verse 41. He tells them to get up, verse 42. Judas betrays him, just as he said, when they were dipping wings and nachos and everything, like I said. Well, it was matzah, of course. Those were my illustrations. Judas comes, and he betrays him with a kiss, the infamous kiss, which, of course, is, uh, brings a lesson in and unto itself that appearances can be deceiving, can't they? You see a guy, oh, man, they're, they're really close. Look how close they are. They're kissing. No, 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 he's betraying him. They lay their hands on him, verse 46. They seize him. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 49. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Why is this taking place, verse 49? To fulfill the scriptures. Again, he's in control. On the one hand, you could read the narrative and go, wow, everything's spiraling out of control. No, it's according to scriptures. Verse 50, they all left him. The mob takes him, and he goes before the courts like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and he suffers in silence. It's that typology of Passover. Just like the disciples who moments before were standing in a line for hours to get to the temple to prepare that lamb, now he has come like that lamb, silent before those who will gut him and slay him. Mark chapter 15, for sake of time, verse 17, we read them dressing up Jesus and mocking him, putting the crown of thorns upon him. They begin hailing him as the king, mocking him, right? Verse, verse 19, they're beating him. Verse 20, they're mocking him, right? And this is all what he is in full control of. This is all what he is full control of. Earlier I said, you know, why is Good Friday good? This is why Good Friday is good, because the innocent one has come to die for the guilty, and we are the guilty. Good Friday is good. It's good news because of the bad news. We deserve death. We deserve the angel of death to visit wrath upon us, but there is one who has come so that we will be passed over in this. He gave his life for us to rescue us. Verse 24, we read that they crucified him. They divided up his garments. That was what we began our service with, the reading of, of the psalmist that prophesied that that would take place. They're casting his lots. The third hour we read, verse 25, they crucified him. For sake of time, skip to verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Following the time stamp of 25, the third hour to verse 34, the ninth hour, we see him suffering for hours on end. And in a matter of hours, Jesus endured what we would have to endure in perpetuity. We would die, and we would deserve to endure this ad infinitum, just on and on and on. That's what we would deserve. But in a matter of hours, he took that upon himself. He was for forsaken of us. And Jesus cried out, verse 37, with a loud cry, and he breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The temple, the place of the presence of God, now we have in the flesh the very presence of God. The temple is torn. The law that has kept us distant from the Holy of Holies has now been fulfilled in the righteous and holy one. And we read a role reversal here at the very end. The centurion who was standing right in front of him, verse 39, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And the role reversal is, here you have this Gentile. He's a part of the, the Roman occupiers, the enemies of God's people. And he seems to understand what is going on. And he understands what is going on because of this last R that is on your outline, received. He has received the one who has come. And he has received that by a gift. And the text is letting you know that through the role reversal because centurions are outside of the covenants of God. And here the God of Israel is drawing someone from the outside in to let you know that he is in control, that he is bringing salvation. As he hangs on the cross, he brings salvation to a thief. 
As he's dying, he brings salvation to a centurion. Tonight, we have remembered what has happened. We have reflected on what God has done. We have been called to repentance for where we have uh, stepped into things that are unclean, removing that which is unclean and receiving, ultimately, the promise of God. These uh, calls of action to, to remember, to reflect, to repent, to remove, to receive, these calls of action, we cannot do in and of ourselves. I, I don't remember. I forget. I don't repent. I rationalize. I don't remove. I sweep it under the rug. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He sweeps nothing under the rug. He puts it on his back and bears the wrath for us. In John 17, as he hung on the cross, he cried out, It is finished, to Tetelestai. It is finished. You know, the world would say, he is finished. Jesus says, no, it, it's finished. I'm not finished. Wait for Sunday. I'm not finished. It is finished. What is the it? The consequences of our sin. The world says, he is finished. He says, no, it is finished. The world says, you are finished, brother or sister. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's finished. I got you. I have paid the penalty for you. Remember the cross, brothers and sisters. Let's take the cup of Passover and reflect on the one who was the Passover for us. Let's repent of our works of self-righteousness. Let's remove the sin that so easily entangles us. Here now, cry out to him, oh Father, I wander like your people. Thank you for the one who has come who does not wander but worships. And receive this ultimate gift as we hold this symbol in our hands and we think of the one whose body was broken for us who came in the flesh of the people of the covenant to be the descendant of Abram and the descendant of the King David. He is the rightful heir, the Messiah of Israel. He is the second Adam. He is the savior of all of the nations. Messiah of the one nation, Israel, but the savior of all nations. He pulls Gentiles in. Welcome outsiders, those of you on the margins. Come in, enjoy this feast here tonight. Let us eat this bread. In scripture, cups are often pictures of wrath. We think of the book of Revelation when the bowls, the cups are open and they're poured out in wrath. Jesus takes the, a symbol of wrath and he says, this is the covenant in my blood. I will take the bullet for you. Even worse than a bullet, he hangs on a cross through that excruciating death for hours on end so that he can set us free from the wrath that we deserve through his life and through his blood. Let's drink the cup and give thanks to him. In the Passover meal, they have an extra cup that's on the table for the prophet Elijah, who is believed to come back in the last of days. It is uh, a part of the Haggadah to send the children out and to, to look outside and see if Elijah has come. The Apostle Paul, uh, in, 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 in talking to the Corinthians about uh, the practice of communion, he says to them, we drink this death, we drink this cup until he comes. We proclaim his death with this cup until he comes. This, this cup is eschatological. We're waiting for the prophet to come. We're waiting for the prophets who will come and the precursor of the king who will come. We're still waiting for this. The difference, of course, uh, for our brothers and sisters in a Jewish tradition, who says, hey, go outside and see if Elijah has come. The question, of course, when the, when the Messiah comes is, have you been here before or not? That's the million-dollar question. And I say to you, he has come, and he is coming again. And just as he was faithful to come and to bear the wages of, of, of the death that we deserve, he will come again, and he will bring life, life everlasting. Let us come. We have two final songs that we are going to sing as we close our Good Friday this night.
I'm going to pray and invite Ian up here to come and to sing. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you that uh, we were able to study such a broad sweep of scripture here tonight, from paradise to Passover to the Passion. Father, we thank you for sending your son to uh, take the death that we deserve upon himself, to die not just in our place, but to fulfill all righteousness that the law required of us. We're thankful that here tonight we're not left with mere calls to action, to repent, to remove, to, to reflect, to remember. For in and of ourselves, we could not do those things, but by your grace we can. So Lord, I pray that here tonight, as we close this service in song, you would do a work within us, stir within us holiness and righteousness and a hunger for you. Bring any here who are here tonight far from you, close to yourself, who like the centurion who, who entered into the night far from you, but closed the night in worship and acknowledgement of you. May none who are here today or who hear this online uh, be, be, be far from you. Draw them in by your grace, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.